0: Hey, my name is Vitaly Klopot, and this is the Business of Education podcast, the podcast for higher education professionals looking for insights in the business of education. Each episode, I will be attempting to bridge the gap between business, marketing, education technology, and social impact through conversations with guests and friends. This week, I am talking to Matt Riddle, a principal at curio.co. Matt is an expert in educational innovation with a career spanning over 25 years. Previous roles include Acting, PVC and Director of Educational Innovation at La Trobe University and Research Associate at the Centre of Applied Research in Education Technologies at the University of Cambridge. Matt is also the CEO and founder of Rocket Shoes, a blockchain edtech startup and serves on the Texa panel of experts on online degrees. TEXA being the local um, higher education regulator in Australia. We had an absolutely fascinating discussion, if I'm honest, one of my favourites so far. We talked about digital learning, the variety of online learning solutions, but more importantly, the role of the modern academic and whether the nature of a faculty member's job is changing with the acceleration to digital delivery, the gig economy and other macro trends. Enjoy. All right, uh, Matt, welcome to the show. Good to have you here. How are you?
1: Thank you, Vitali. Great to be here.
0: I'm excited to talk to you. We we um, had a bit of an offline conversation and we spoke about some of the things that, that you um, do a curio, some of the things that we are um, eagerly wanting to talk about today so I'm, I'm really excited to dive in. Um, I thought we would start by just letting you introduce yourself and, and how you got to where you are a Curio in your career as a whole and then we'll take it from there if that's okay.
1: Yeah of course. Um, my career started out at the University of Melbourne uh, where I spent quite a long time, it's probably 13 or 14 years at the University of Melbourne in a variety of roles. I've always skirted around the The connection between education and innovation. And I've occupied roles that have been academic in nature and also technical in nature. I I think I started out as a a multimedia programmer when multimedia was the big thing, uh, which dates me a little bit, I suppose. Um, And then um, after that period at the University of Melbourne, I got an opportunity to come to the UK and I worked at uh, the University of Cambridge at the Center for Applied Research in Educational Technologies, which I believe is no longer there, but was really interesting place to work. And I, I worked on a couple of projects um, there as a research associate, then um, moved back home to Melbourne to work at La Trobe University, um, finishing up um, a couple of years ago now. Um, and when I finished, I was uh, Director of Educational Innovation. Um, and was acting Pro Vice-Chancellor Teaching and Learning. Um, so I sort of went through a series of, of leadership roles um, through through that post at, at, uh, at La Trobe, um, particularly involving myself around online education towards the end of my tenure there, uh, then took long service leave. And I, I guess the question being, how did I end up exactly where I am? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> as 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 happens with a uh, long service leave, you get some good ideas, and and I, I guess I had an idea of, of a startup, and I started um, that up. It was it was a uh, an idea around blockchain in education. Um, we were uh, lucky enough to get funded very very quickly. Um, and anybody who knows the blockchain world, it, it's kind of a topsy turvy world world of funding. And I ended up. Uh, doing some consulting um, and and moved into working with the curio group which is a Melbourne um, originally a Melbourne based company working really around that online education area and that's where I am now as it, it, my full-time role is now with curio group um, and it, it's been a really interesting journey because curio group is has grown in the time that I've been there tremendously with the the increased demand for online education. And then in the last year, it's just sort of completely gone berserk really with, with the demand side of things with um, the situation we've all found ourselves in with the coronavirus pandemic, of course. So, so that's where I am today.
0: Awesome. Thanks for that. Um, Tell me a little bit about Curio. So um, how old is the company? Uh, what are the uh, kind of the the typical suite of services that you provide, um, etc.?
1: Yeah, Kirio Group will be coming up to its fifth birthday, I think, this year, um, and so it's pretty it's pretty young. Uh, it's kind of going from being a startup to to scaling up. That's kind of the the way to date it, I think. <laughs> um, and it started out as mostly in the advisory space. Um, uh, started by uh, David Bowser, also um, formerly uh, University of Melbourne and Cambridge, by the way, um, and I sort of knew him um, prior to, to joining the company. Um, and uh, David had worked in in various uh, strategic and advisory roles. Um, I think that the company kind of took that that place of of being um, pretty forward thinking company. Focusing on online online learning, um, but but really offering advice in a range of areas, um, including market strategy and and um, you know sort of uh, strategic advice in the sort of higher education space, and then grew into various areas of need that were identified through those um, those advisory projects. So it's now kind of a portfolio company with a number of different focuses. Uh, The one that I'm in most of all, I do a bit of advisory, but I I do a lot of work in the uh, learning design space or course creation, you know, arm of the business that we call learning experience practice. Um, But we also do uh, things like digital services. We do hosting of courses um, and we do, um, in particular, uh, a lot of work in the delivery space, just actually Helping institutions with the delivery side of of the education um, of what we call Curio faculty. Um, so, and this includes things like um, facilitation of online learning delivery, uh, assessment management, supporting students, and so on. Um, and we also have one arm um, um, of the business that's focused more on products now, um, focusing on on one of our products called Palette, which is a a sort of um, front uh, storefront for um, learning management system based experiences for students
0: do you often get um, categorized as an OPM company when you're talking to universities or people in the sector the, the, the is that how you would describe yourself and, and others or not
1: um, I think I guess we we overlap with OPMs so the difference between us and an OPM I guess there, there are a couple of differences that are really obvious. Um, the first one is coming from that advisory area, as I said. Um, We've got a business model that is that is much more focused on um, the particular needs, um, tailored services to those needs. It's not a one-size-fits-all, um, and we are fee-for-service for that reason. So we, we don't come in with a, a model that says we will, um, you know, Share revenue, that kind of thing. Um, I guess that's one of the 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 main differentiators in the way that we would see ourselves. The other side, I suppose, is that um, we don't focus on some of the areas that OPMs have traditionally focused on in that lead generation space and that marketing space. Even though we have products that are like Palette, which are sort of situated in that um, customer experience space, it's not really um SEO and things like that, that are our bread and butter. Uh, what we focus on is mostly around student experience as the hub and the digital services play into that um, and support that. Um, so it's a it's a different um I guess we're we're we we overlap in some ways, but it's a different play. And we work in with um partnerships with universities alongside OPMs as well. Um, because of that, so we don't see ourselves as as direct competitors in many many cases.
0: And and so the partnerships that you have, where there is also an OPM provider, how do you typically um, uh, devise the roles and responsibilities amongst Curio and the OPM provider? So typically, you know, as, as far as I know, OPM companies would definitely be wanting to own the marketing and recruitment side of things um and it sounds like curio are uh heavily focused on the post-enrollment side of the business and and the the student journey um is that a good way of describing the the split or is there more yeah i
1: i think that's that's a a good first um cut of how we how how it would be sitting I, i suppose we we don't see that as our space uh so much, although we work with clients where we we might be um, brokering in that kind of capability, um, the answer, the real answer is it just depends on the needs of the institution or the organization we're working with as to what we'll provide. Um, so we negotiate all of that upfront um, and it and therefore there's not really one answer to that question um but yeah that's not a bad way to put it i suppose the other side to this is you know realistically what what's going on in in this space is that um a lot of institutions are trying to to move into the online space um for the first time but many many uh, institutions have already been in the online space and they want to ramp it up um either pr- you know prior to covid because they're they're moving more naturally into that space or now because they have had to move into the space and scale is one of the really big issues how do you do that well at scale um so there are horses for courses is the answer there are needs that are different and distinct from those that might be struck with a long-term you know kind of arrangement partnership with an opm um that that uh need to be met and um in many cases that means um having a a different model for different areas of the business. So sometimes it might be a focus that's on sh- you know short courses that's not contained within an existing agreement. Sometimes it might be um, well we we've got this this rather large program of work we need to accomplish. Um, therefore, we need to divide these pieces. Um, it, it just depends on the needs, and, and there's no really really good single answer to that.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So so it sounds like. Um if we kind of backtrack 10 years, um, most of the thinking the universities had is, uh, had were, were kind of, how do we go online? How do we actually get some online programs up and running? And that was a conversation 10, 15 years ago, and yep. some have done it better than others. Um, but I think what you're saying is that with COVID, um, most of the problems now from a scale perspective are not necessarily how do we go online, but how do we actually deliver online at scale yeah um and, and so okay we've got the students um even if these weren't um your kind of typical opm enabled online programs um you suddenly have a whole host of universities with a large domestic student base that are now all online and the scale problem swiftly moved from how do we get more online learners to actually how do we teach all of these uh online learners who who potentially weren't studying online previously
1: that's right yeah and so so there's a number of scenarios and and of course scale does moving uh into scale does doesn't mean we drop our quality standards either our our standard has to be up to to scratch so um yeah so there's a range of of different types of problems and i think you're right i think it applies to the australian the australian context as well um that sort of 10 to 15 um time period uh, year time period i think we saw the same thing we saw a lot of institutions making their first steps um they might not have had an internal team to do these things or if they did they might have been focused on other agendas like blended learning um and so they've how do we do fully online, what's the fully online experience, what's the experience like for a student who's not going to show up on one of our campuses at all um, between the time that they uh, first enrol to the time that they take out their degree. Um, Now, you know, we've moved past that time point, but we have, you know, we we have a need to continue um, teaching uh, and we need all of our Team to be teaching online, but we just don't have any extra people to be able to do um, this design and development piece and this delivery piece that needs to change into to something quite um, quite different. So those are the sorts of problems that we're seeing today, uh, as well as you know the existing, which is sometimes there'll be there'll be those institutions who are saying for the first time we are we are going to do these fully online programs and we want to make them focused on areas of of market need those kinds of things
0: interesting um i I have seen lots of businesses who due to covid i think have pivoted the narrative and the strategy slightly to encompass instructional design and content creation and digitization um as part of the core service um in order to get some of that wider business and sell some of the wider proposition so there are um, learning management system companies, um, yeah. some new startups in the u k, for example, that have recently um, essentially moved away from the old narrative of here's a new uh, learning experience uh, management system that's mobile first. You know here's a bit of tech. you know, this is the cost per student from a licensing fee perspective to actually saying, you can only use the system if you also buy into our way of creating courses. We will help you with the instructional design piece, and you can't unbundle the two. Um, yeah. And it's through the digitization of the materials, and I think the the the, the people's piece. Uh, I.e., you know, you just don't have enough faculty. Let us help you go out to the big wide world and 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 get those folks for you. Um, that they've essentially merged the, the two and, and have created a slightly different business model. And it's through that hunger and appetite for the emergency um, content uh, course creation uh, that's been COVID-driven, they've been able to essentially get a foot in the door with some of the wider technology that, that they've been building. And, yeah. and I think that's interesting. It is do interesting. Is- universities, um, do you think that universities... Are struggling to do this themselves frankly because of the is it a people problem is it is it really just a case of how do we actually scale this um, where do we you know how do we find faculty can we go outside of the the, the you know Australia in your case or or um, the, the the kind of the country that we're operating from or is there more to it is there also a technology play and a, and a, and a real kind of insight and USB to the course design itself.
1: Yeah. I mean to tie those two ideas together, I guess it's 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 almost surprising that we haven't had um, more of a move towards what I'd say is, you know, the focus on the student experience and the and the you know the sort of human centered design aspect of of learning in an online context before now. Uh, and it's almost as though we've had a a, sh- a shock. That's caused a realization in many, um, you know, university uh, senior executive groups <laughs> to say, "Wow, you know, our core business is really around the student experience in the online space as well, not just as an a, an added, you know, movement to increase our our market or to to to, to increase our reach, I guess." Um, and so that 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 sort of awakening sort of seems to have come quite late in my view there's it's as though we've seen it as for many years um despite all the literature despite what we really know about learning as though it is about the stuff um the content you know that we've that we've got and and the the knowledge that we hold as universities you know we've sort of maintained this this view of a kind of well, if we put the materials online, that's that's that, that's kind of the model. We we know that as learners that's not what it's about. We know that learning is a truly transformative experience, and and it's it's one of the only things you can do that 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 um you know, one of the really clearest ways that you can have a product that is actually about the transformation of the individual themselves, and therefore it's very human centered what's going on. So it sort of surprises me that we haven't had that shift. But it's, it's certainly that's I think what's What's underpinning and under underlying um, these decisions of of companies, but also institutions, to reorient themselves around that that very important aspect um, that is about you know student experience, and therefore I think a lot flows on from that. And to answer the second part of the question, I think it's it is about people, but it's more fundamentally about capability. And if you think about other industries. Um, you know, alongside higher education, you can see how digital capability has become f- more and more and more core to the business. Let's look at retail. Let's look at banking. Let's look at um, music, music industry, or whatever you want to think about. Um, you can see how digital capabilities have become core to the business. Now, of course, that's happened in a in a way with higher education, but in another sense, you can you can imagine the business continuing on when um, know if we think about the power going out you can't imagine that really with with a banking institution now you know money just doesn't get created so that i think you can see how core or not the digital capability is and then when you think about that um in the online space of course it is an absolutely core capability and institutions many institutions have orientated themselves towards building core capabilities, but they often don't have a very significant team um, of people. Um, they often don't have very significant investment in what seems to be the core business. Um, so a good example would be, you know, how easy is it for your institution to put together a case, a business case for a 50 million-pound building or 150 million-pound building, depending on where you might be, um, compared to a similar-sized, um, you know, investment in that in that online learning space. And you can see how those two cases would run in your average senior executive group and imagine what the outcome might be and it's pretty clear um, the building gets through more easily and we're just very encultured to that investment having you know, uh, something very tangible. And, uh, of course, bricks and mortar, you know, look and feel good. But right now we is a moment where you can quite um, clearly see where a question mark would come beside that decision because how are we going to get the students, you know, to to actually travel to, to, to the, use these buildings, you know. And so I think we're starting to see that play out in terms of ha- uh, the decision-making that's felt fairly natural being being questioned and people starting to say hang on a minute we we need to build these capabilities now you you know um how do you build that capability in time to get a return on investment in terms of just the business side of this um it makes sense to get support to do that which is where we come in i suppose Um, but other companies are seeing that as well
0: and so does curio build Capability that remains at the university, or mm. is it ultimately a service that comes and goes if if the university ultimately eventually stops paying for it?
1: I think this is another point of difference for for our model. We are very much focused on the outcomes for the institution, and and so we do things in a slightly different way, and we will build capability within the institution. So, and there's various examples of that I could explain, um, maybe without. Referencing the particular institutions, but some institutions are. No, you are you undertaking... can reference
0: them if you'd like. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know how, how we'll, we'll translate for your audience, but um, you know, one of the one of our biggest partners is RMIT um, in in Melbourne, well, um, Melbourne Institute of Technology uh, University, um, and they're they're a really big institution. I think they've got in excess of eighty to ninety thousand students or something like that. So, um, they're you know, at the forefront, I would say in terms of digital learning and and their strategy and, and things like that. So they're really looking at with in the Australian context coming out of you know the feeling here is really um, uh, I'm almost apologetically I guess bringing this topic up, but 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 the the pandemic is is in a way in 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 good control here. So people are starting to think about well, how how do we come out of this and retain a lot of the lessons that we learn about online learning and bring those into what is more of a hybrid space and, and, and create an experience that we would choose for students that has a, a, a digital first kind of approach, um, but also make coming to our campus more worthwhile and, and useful for students. So they're really looking really hard at things like, well, how important and useful are, are long form lectures when we know that what we've learned from from doing this fully online, that the points of gain tend to be around active learning and all those sorts of things that that can be done in a really great way in, if well designed in the online space. So when you're talking about that kind of scale, think about that number of students and the number of staff you've got involved, academic staff you've got involved in teaching, the, the goal is not to um, take away from that group. The goal is to support that group of 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 um, academics to be able to retain those lessons, to be able to build the practice, to build build communities of practice, to um, develop projects that that um, redesign learning experience for for students that that's really superior. So, so our role as a as a company is not to come in and 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 do it all. In that case, um, for the institution, it's to to help them to build a really great. Uh, learning experience really for for their for their team and build capability internally. And so we do that kind of thing as well, as well as partnering with them in the RMIT online space space, which is one of the big areas of development that we do, uh, design and de- designing and developing courses themselves for fully online students. Um, so we kind of are able to to do it all in that sense. We we can do that building of capability. Um, and another case would be uh, Queen Mary University of London. Where we worked with um, with their team to um, really move very rapidly with the w- during the pandemic um, to quite carefully um, structure the approach to learning design, almost sort of topping and tailing the learning design. So but having experts who who have helped to design structured storyboards, so that it makes it easier for existing academics in the institution to to convert their existing student experiences but with an online learning uh, paradigm in mind and then build quality and then at the end do quality assurance on that and then help with the delivery side of it. So leaving the capability inside the institution was the goal all all along but we also needed to do the design and development along the way and, and do that rapidly and at scale. So um, so yeah so there's there's a couple of examples for you
0: thank you um let's bookmark the queen mary example i'd love to come back to it for in a second you you, you mentioned and you talked about business cases specifically and the reason uh or, or the typical uh assumption that uh pushing a business case through for a 50 million pound investment to for for kind of a digital transformation yeah um if you like will be much harder and i and i completely agree with you and i think you know, as you said that I was thinking, well, why is that the case? And and most probably, you know, the the ultimate goal of a business case is to show return on investment. Yep. Um and it's easier to do that when you can measure it yep. better. So it's got to be measurable. Obviously with the bricks and mortar building, you've either got the building or you don't. It's extremely easy to measure in the grand scheme of things. It's much harder to measure a successful digital transformation for kind of the post-enrollment student journey when it comes to the learning experience, the engagement, the efficacy, the the uh comprehension, um, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So if we if we assume that it's more difficult to measure, how do you as an outside institution or as an outside service provider, who is your actual client at universities and how do you um get buy-in at universities to do that who do you end up having to sell to ultimately first and foremost um and and you know when when we think about digital transformations we're clearly we're probably talking about a whole host of people quite a number of departments um how do you actually end up structuring the relationship where on the one hand you're the service provider and you've come in and the university has hired you to do a uh or to own the process of transforming something and improving something but at the same time uh you also have the balancing act of not making it feel like it's a top heavy top down approach where you know you're talking to a dean of a program or a program leader or a faculty member and say well you know, this is how we're going to do it from now on. So how, how, you know, I assume that's a challenge. How do you think about those things?
1: I think if I can come back to the example of the business case, because I've, I've been involved in lots of things to do with buildings and lots of things to do with business cases for online. <laughs> and if I can characterize it this way, I think people would be familiar with the, the problem of, trying to present a business case and a pre-COVID um, going back a few years of cannibalization coming up. So you you know the typical senior executive conversation goes, you know, what's what are our aspirations in terms of um, enrollments in this space? And then the typical query comes, but how is that going to impact our existing products and our existing market? Um, and history has kind of borne out the truth the truth, I think, that that um, in fact online learners are typically not the same people <laughs> um, and there's typically a very small um, overlap in terms of people who um, could go to a campus, um, you know, choosing to go fully online um, just because it's, it tends to be different. We We did one at one of the institutions where I was working, um, one analysis of, you know, one of the big success stories in terms of online um, and found that our overlap was something like three (laughs) percent in terms of the catchment areas for for the courses. And what we had was a huge success because we were attracting students from from interstate, from other states of Australia um, into Victoria. And these were students who wouldn't have been, you know, uh, students of that institution prior to that. So that's a bit of a myth that's been bust, busted over time. So I think that 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 helps. But now the situation is completely different because we're not really having that conversation anymore. We're having the conversation which is, by all means, let's get online because we do need to have those people who would normally be coming to our campuses engaged in, in high-quality learning. How can we do that um, as quickly as possible? Who do we speak to and how do we speak to them? It's almost always... Um, ultimately you know decision makers in the institution um so they tend to be people um in senior executive groups or with particular um strategic roles um around online learning sometimes but um you know usually you're, you're um working with people like that in a way that you see this as a as a win win and and it is a genuine partnership because and that, that those are the um those are the ways to have successful um, projects, and those are the ways to have successful outcomes when you are focused genuinely on the on the outcomes um, of ultimately the students themselves as the as the as the um, ultimate customer. Because so, so that's Matt, what, what, your what out- are trying to do.
0: What outcomes do you focus on, and what outcomes work best in business cases? Because pre COVID, as you mentioned business cases for Im- the improvement of online learning were hard to get to push through. And the reasons that business cases are businessy in nature, they're commercial in nature yep. and it's hard to justify or connect the dots between the post enrollment experience. Yep. You know, you're it's something that happens or starts and, um, beyond you know the other side of the wall if you like so there's this whole pre-enrollment you know big commercial and marketing and and, and sales driven um admissions uh, driven conversation the student is finally excited to start and then it there's almost this feeling and typically in universities that student gets handed over to uh you know and and begins the post-enrollment journey um yeah. where the learning experience actually starts and tying in a business case tying the uh relationship and connection of improvements in learning experience to improvements in increased enrollments are very hard to do because frankly in most cases universities don't and and students don't even get to see what the online experience looks like before enrolling
1: so for us it's typically targets that are not to do so much with enrollments for us, because we don't work so much in the lead generation space, the targets are usually around student success, uh, student satisfaction, um, teaching scores, things like that. Because and uh, keeping keep in mind, my part of the business is is around course creation, learning design, you know, uh, and learning experience have a lot to do with the success of the students who are enrolled, and, and some to some extent. They are to do with, of course, building numbers over time because then you, word gets out, um, and you get um, you get increased enrollments because people talk to each other. Um, but usually, it's about student success. In other words, the whole journey, where and that journey might be for a short course. It might only be six weeks, right? But you want you want a, a successful completion, but you also want somebody who says um, that was a really great experience. So, and I can remember not so long ago when student uh, success rates online was, was a, a very big topic and retention rates were, were um, under the microscope, you know, off the back of that um, 2012 kind of MOOC era where the, where you had the, you know, um, the, the things that have been mentioned on this program, I'm sure, many times about promises that were made. Um, but at that time and, and in the subsequent, I'd say, five or um, so years, student success and retention rates in the online space would be, you know, they'd be good if they were 40%. Um, and now I think we're driving much more around that 80% for both in terms of, you know, sort of fours out of fives in terms of um, Likert scales for for you know, teaching and for student experience and around 80% or above, you know, in terms of student success and retention. Uh, that's a big difference in my view in the last few years where, where it's much more in line with what you would expect, maybe even better than what you would expect in a face-to-face institution um, in, in some instances. And hopefully that's because it's serving an important need and giving a student something that they wouldn't otherwise get. So that's, I think, the ultimate um, success, the, the ultimate test and the ultimate goal is is student success.
0: So you're saying, you know, if you're putting a business case through um, uh, kind of short-term surveys um, yeah. if in terms of quality of, of uh, teaching, student satisfaction, et cetera, yeah. Uh, the short-term indicators medium term indicators might be completion rates ultimately yes. etc and then longer term indicators actually might be an increased number of students because you'd expect that word of mouth yeah effect and, a, to and if we've
1: if we've got an engagement that's a more strategic engagement which is t- which is often how we are engaged these days there might be goals around things like um, a micro credential framework which then you know you're looking to to offer students opportunities to uh, connect those experiences and go back around that student experience loop and do the next thing or got potentially it. move into a grad cert or something like that. So so then then you've got longer-term goals and that's dependent on, on the got relationship.
0: It. So just in terms of capability specifically from a, from a, a learning, des- instructional design, learning design, tech specifically, yeah. if you had to talk about that a little bit, what's the secret source? For, you know, are universities overcomplicating it? Is that your? Um, is that what you're seeing, or is it a case of proprietary technology? Are you bundling certain best practice kind of vendors together into a learning experience? How do you think about those things um, from a from a uh, a user experience from a technology oh, point of view, given all of the the super high expectations that students now have because absolutely. of the likes of Netflix and Spotify and and all sorts of. Th- you know, uh, vendors outside of the education oh,
1: sector. Quite, you know, um, look, uh, I have to say that when I first started working on, on the fully online business case type of space, <laughs> we, we employed business analysts and we uh, looked at our, you know, internal systems at the university I was working at. And um, lo and behold, you know, one of the first things we discovered was that in order to enroll in this institution, um, you would have to present yourself it uh, doesn't matter where you lived, <laughs> to a, a desk on a particular campus and pick up your login details. There was no way to mail it out to the student. Um, and, you know, even, you know, requiring snail mail, as it were, <laughs> would have been um, uh, a better solution than actually showing up in person, let alone someone who's interstate or overseas who might be enrolling. The other, the second thing we found out about, just in terms of that infrastructure that we come to ex- expect with a sort of uh, CRM and backend and things like that these days, in order to enroll someone, the cost of doing that for the institution was in the hundreds of dollars, the, the hundreds of pounds, I could say. Um, so if you're going to then try to um, devise a business case that says you're going to have <laughs> a, a return on investment guess where a big chunk of your investment just went, it just uh, enrolling that student. So we had to really look at, from top to bottom, at you know what is the, the smooth process for a student to actually fork out their money <laughs> and pay for a, even just a, a short course. Um, now, when you're used to being an institution that's focused around you know many thousands of dollars investment from each student or pounds, of course, you absorb that cost, and you don't, and you and you keep moving. Um, that's not an option these days. So, um, and the other side, just in terms of the student experience, I guess I'd separate out um, that kind of customer experience piece, or, or sort of pre enrollment piece, you know, discovery and um, and and moving in an enrolment, and and then the transition point into the the courses. It is kind of surprising, isn't it, that. Uh, VLEs, learning management systems, as we call them in Australia, haven't changed as much as we might expect. They might have. <laughs> I always think about this and think, you know, look at other industries and how quickly they've adopted, you know, kind of mobile first strategies and things like that. Try and do something on your learning management system, your VLE, on your phone. And that that's the space that students inhabit most of the time. And that's a good test, I think. Um, so the, is it what the students? experience in their daily lives in other industries no i don't think it is and i think we should do a better job at that and so um uh, you know in terms of curio group we're very um technology agnostic actually so we'll work with institutions with whatever their virtual learning environment is but um but we also bring some things to the party like this um i can't help but mention Palette, which is a, a product that we have which is the storefront, so it's basically a Shopify, if you know Shopify, um, experience for, for a student coming in and, and discovering a course that they want, searching for it. Um, maybe they've got a code, a voucher that they can put in and say, oh, I'll get a, a discount or I might be enrolled be- on, by virtue of being a staff member, for example, uh, an academic who's coming in to do an academic development piece. And they can have that experience that is literally click, click, and I'm in, um, or I'm now entering my credit card. Believe me, that 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 was something that we dreamt of a few years ago in terms of being able to <laughs> um, have a customer experience that matches something that you would expect, say, on Amazon, you know, or um, wherever your favourite online um, store is in the in the higher education space. And that's the kind of thing that I think we need to really focus on. How do we smooth out all those wrinkles for for a, a learner to get in and do what they want to do and have the experience that they expect? I guess the other side, in terms of the, the virtual learning environment and what happens in that, um, it really depends on, the, uh, on the, the institution's own set of tools, that um, ecosystem that they have adopted. And in some cases, um, for example, in the short course area, you may want to use tools that are much more focused around uh, students. You know, the the work environment or the industry environment that, they, that they're moving into, rather than depending on internally supported ecosystems. So we'll design around around that, and and I think that's a good good example of how these days you you wouldn't you don't try and necessarily make everything about the the content. Um, that's inside an environment you actually are thinking about this whole experience well how would they apply this knowledge where would they do that in in real life and how can we actually make that bring that into the, the student experience that they're going to be experiencing in this institutional uh, context
0: yeah and get to and, do and that? the challenge is to the challenge is to productize that in the box where they feel that it's a single experience from start to finish so it sounds like palette is more a tool for improved discovery and onboarding. So entering courses, um, which is fantastic, much needed. Um, From a learning experience point of view, I remember kind of, again, five, 10 years ago, people were judging universities' um, quality of online delivery simply based on the learning management system that they had which is absolutely ridiculous because you know if you know anything about online learning any of the vle's or the lms's are frankly just blank pieces of paper and it's about how and what you you build and how you know how you 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 curate and create content um on those courses so there's some fantastic moodle Experiences, even though you know you might have the average person telling you the Moodle's quite outdated, and there's yeah. some terrible canvas or blackboard courses yes. that um, uh, you know have clearly been designed by somebody who has no instructional design experience, um, and so they're trying to put a lipstick on the pig, essentially. Yeah. Um, and and so yeah, you know, I think institutions and and schools and faculties within universities really stand out by the quality of the materials that ultimately have the biggest impact on on the learning experience as a whole Um, quite i couldn't agree more yeah what are some kind of you know best case uh, scenarios or practices that you see from a from a course design content digitization content digitization perspective, um, it, again, assuming, and as you said, Curio being quite agnostic, which I think is is definitely mm. the best way forward from a business perspective.
1: Mm. I think I would say that the best cases, uh, uh, keep in mind, we do a lot across the postgraduate space, um, as well as the undergraduate space. But there's an awful lot more courseware really in the in the postgraduate space. If you're thinking about that, um, for example, um, you often are trying to, often the product is really around something that is taking someone from um, their graduate situation into a new career direction. So you're trying to give them a feel for what it is like to be uh, a practitioner in that space. So often the best cases are, are not where you're very, um, focused on what I'd say is a kind of traditional um, theory um, focus to the course. You're actually focusing more on practice. And, um, I'll give an example of um, one that we did recently was around service design in practice. So, you you know, you think about this area of service design and the learning design response was really quite brilliant. I think it was around virtual internships so the, the students are actually um, it's as though they're an intern in a company. They're, they're given a scenario. They they give the, the the company has a name. They have um, emails from uh, a manager welcoming them as a, an intern, and this is what they're going to be working on. Um, and it sounds trite. It sounds like it's something that that um, wouldn't be all that engaging necessarily. But actually, you know what? It really is. And, and the and the stuff that that um, you can work with then has a lot more meaning to the, to the to the learner. And and then the tools that they're using just to, to cover off on that sort of technology aspect are things that people who are service designers actually use. So they're using the, the digital tools um, that they would have to hand. Um, so then you're thinking, as a learning designer, you're thinking things like how much of this is going to be asynchronous. Typically it's quite a lot because that provides a lot of um flexibility but you also want peer learning to happen so you're providing them with, with tools that allow them to do synchronous type learning and that might be again industry focused so perhaps it's slack that we agree with with the institution that we're going to to provide a chat platform we make it like a work environment they have an identity in that slack environment they're they're working on, on a project together and they're hitting each other up during the day for for um for comment on the latest version of this um, document, they're sharing things on that platform, as well as then needing to um, in, interact with the virtual learning environment to submit things and, and um, have the, the spine of their experience pulled together. Um, I think the other side to this is, you know, what you can do in a in a in a virtual learning environment is provide consistency of, of experience. So there's navigational consistency. There's style uh consistency so in poorly executed um, you know uh, approaches of course then you have that that whole issue of like how do we do this at scale and then what is what is the type of product that we have and how does that align with what our um, strategic goals are and then how, what are we known for and all those sorts of things that that actually play out into the learning design so being really connected in with what that strategy is is really important so in that case this was you know very in line with the institutional goal to make um, to make the student experience really connect with industry um, yeah so that's an example I could give others but that's a good example yeah that's
0: interesting it, yeah I, I think it, 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 depending on as you mentioned the the strategy of the portfolio of courses or the school or the specific you know credit or non credit bearing uh, course or degree yeah um that often should and 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 it probably doesn't happen enough dictate some of the course design because if you have a subject area that actually is needing quite a lot of um upkeep when it comes to curriculum so it could be a subject area that changes quite often that that needs a lot of revision um actually designing something that's extremely bespoke and unique and different might not be the best way forward because you're going to Spend a ton of time um, iterating uh, and and revisiting that over the course of the 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 lifetime of the degree, if you like. Um, at the same time, if you've got something like uh, an introduction to management or economics um, one hundred and one, and you're kind of really looking at theory, you can probably assume that most of that isn't going to change anytime soon. Yeah. Um, and and then you're actually looking to really uh create some uh unique learning experience and and really bring in some interesting kind of external ideas etc and and make it something that you you know that you can you know, the return on investment of spending that time and effort designing something that's truly different yep. will stand the test of time because you're not really looking to come back and revise that course anytime soon because you're not expecting changes. That's
1: yeah, what. why would I choose to come to your institution is the question you should be asking yourself, I suppose. What makes it stand out? So, for example, you know, keeping on that theme of, you know, industry connection, you know, who are you co- co-designing your courses with? Who are your partners in industry who are informing that design. So often we will have, you know, right from the early stages of what we call blueprinting a uh, course, there'll be a product piece, which is, a, you know, might be informed by a, a product team or we might have had some involvement in, which says, you know, these are the product attributes, these are the things that we're trying to hit, these, this is the um, market for this course, these are the various personas of the people who we think will be attracted to the course. And these are the types of things that that we expect them to be doing. But when we do the blueprint, we'll we'll actually be working with people who are leaders in that industry. They might be executives at Salesforce, for example. Uh, they might be, you know, um, other companies that that students would have heard of that are in their industry and are industry players um, and leaders. So that that really helps. Obviously, it helps with the marketing piece, but it also helps with grounding the design in the reality of the practice um and and puts the student um and i don't want to sound like a marketing piece for you but i really do, do think it prepares the student um for the kind of place that they might be going into and therefore gives them an opportunity to say uh, first firstly build confidence that 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 um the practice is what it should be but also gain an insight into to what the work is like and whether it's right for them, um, those kinds of things. So, yeah, I think that's a really um, important aspect of how these are these are designed. De- they, you can't really design it in a vacuum. And as a, in terms of learning designers, the people who who typically do the the hard work of putting the experience together, they're actually almost like mediating between academic voices and industry voices, and then the student. Um, Voices in terms of feedback on these courses to try and build something mm. that that really bridges those um, those worlds.
0: So, so we spoke about capabilities uh, in, in quite detail. Um, let's talk about people for a little bit. Um, yeah. Faculty are obviously at the heart of, of universities um, and and the kind of the uh, the core um, of everything that's going on and and what universities stand for. If we assume that we've now built out these capabilities, um, it seems to me that we might have a problem where we kind of give a, a lorry driver's keys to a Ferrari and say, "Kind of off you go." Right? Um, yeah. uh, is there a, is there a problem or, or a potential bottleneck in some of the uh, uh, skills that? Uh, kind of a traditional faculty member would have Um, and and is there a gap there is there a gap around the expectations of a modern day um, faculty member a tutor or facilitator Um, if you suddenly go out and build all of those sexy things you know I don't know how many faculty members at universities have heard of Slack yeah yeah Um, and so (laughs) how do yeah what do you think about that
1: and of course we should disclaim that we're not besmirching lorry drivers. I'm sure many of them have got fancy fancy cars and do that really well. And it's the same <laughs> with academics. You know, and there are many who are who have been doing it for a long time and and are really wonderful in the online space. But some are not, and or have not had the chance to develop the skills. And there are a specific set of skills involved, for example, in online online facilitation. And and actually, I think most. Um, Recognize the sense in saying that. Why would we expect someone who's devoted their career to studying their their topic and becoming the expert in that should be, you know, brilliant at, for example, um, producing videos. You know, that that's a whole different skill set, and there are there are there are people with those skills, and and yet, in a way, during the pandemic, we sort of were thrown fair and fully in into that that sort of space where all of a sudden. Academics were kind of expected in many institutions to just come up with the goods and then sit down and, and record something that they hadn't prepared as in for that format. Um, and it's not the same skill set, and it and we have to recognise that. And so, I actually think there's um, there's a whole um, area of online facilitation that is a specific set of skills um, that that are around a whole range of things. I mean. The sorts of things we talk about as being the, the the different components of the role of an online facilitator, there is that pedagogic role, you know, that role in motivating students, in guiding students, and um and in developing the interactions around the content. But there's also this the social role, you know, what is it to promote a learning community? How do we actually um create that sense of community for students? How do we engage with them? How do we cultivate their participation. And then there's a, you know, sort of managerial and technical parts to the role. The managerial role, if you like, is about setting expectations and, and objectives and directing the pace of the course and, and you know, setting timelines and rules and things like that. And then there's a bit, and this depends a bit on the institution, but there is a bit of a technical role um, that I'm sure most academics have experience where they're making sure sure that the students can function with the technology and whether or not you have the support in place to to you know with your uh, your ecosystem to support those um, those students with the technology is is, a, is an open question and of course we should um, but like it or not often those online facilitators or the academics if you don't have them are the front line for those for those queries and so we get a lot of academics who say look i'm inundated with these these people saying i don't know how to um reset my password so unless you have a way to, to to direct traffic in that regard um you're at a loss so there's there's a it's a multitude of rules
0: is it realistic to expect the vast majority of academics at the universities if you take the whole sector you know be it in australia or in the uk yeah how many like are we is our expectation realistic or do you see a new type of kind of 21st century modern quote-unquote modern academic that's a bit more attuned to technology I guess and instructional design and talking to a camera as opposed to talking to uh, a real audience it are we are we moving towards a different type of facilitator, yeah. or is there a role for both the old, uh, more kind of a theoretical academic, as well as the more uh, kind of tech attuned, if you like, facilitator?
1: Yeah, it's a really really key question. I I think that in many cases we are unrealistic about the expectations on academics. I think the almost all of the ones I know, I used to be one, you know. Work too hard and work too long and and now we're adding to that burden. Um, so something's got to give, hasn't it? so and if that's going to be you know students' quality of experience, we've got a real problem because that will disengage students, but it'll also disengage academics and so we need to be either we've got to support academics better um, and there are a variety of ways to do that, um, or we've got to have. Um, specific, you know, roles that actually focus on these online aspects, and there's a bit of a connection between those. You don't; it's not an either or, really. So there are people who are, you know, academics in let's say cognate areas who've, who've, um, they might have a say, for example, a business background, and they're facilitating in a range of business uh, degrees or or, um, or courses who are carving out careers for themselves because they are excellent at online facilitation um, and they have the right qualifications. They're they're qualified um, to the level they need to be, you know, for quality reasons, but they also get really great results in terms of student learning who are really doing um, a, a great amount of work at the moment and who are carving out careers for themselves. Now, the whole business of what has happened to academia, and um, I'm a child of an academic, I saw, you know, her work through the 1980s, she was a, you know, she chaired a department, and and the the business that a university is, you know, since that time, compared to now, is, is completely different, and the career that one expects going into academia is completely different, and I suppose this is not to um, address that directly, it's just to recognise, probably since the the 90s or the early 2000s, there really has been um, spoken about in the literature this third space, this this nexus of academic and technical uh, capabilities, or what we would think of as you know sort of academic versus professional. Um, this this connection between those things and a, a third type of of um, of professional academic, if you like, and. And alongside that, this gig economy that of course has um has had um both positive and negative impacts on individuals who are who are experiencing it um I know many um people who've had you know the the difficulty of um of trying to have a career when their institutions are not willing to or able to uh in, employ them on a tenured basis and they get they have to wait to be re-employed re- what we're seeing now in terms of how this plays out in in this online space is people who are actually able to get stable work and have are starting to build careers for themselves in the online facilitation space and that arm um, of curio that's been focused on delivery is is actually creating a genuine space for them to inhabit so um there's there's a uh, a group uh, Within of academics who who are within Curio, who are genuinely highly skilled and wonderful people who are teaching for a range of institutions effectively, but who are really um, terrific at facilitation as well. And uh, and um and there's a huge demand for it, but there's also a huge number of academics who've got spare time to do this. So um, a number in the thousands who we who we work with. So yeah, it's a genuinely um interesting and exciting moment i think for people um to be able to 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 carve out a career in that way
0: so so this is sounds to me like a uh, just a time based problem as we go through transition because mm. if you if you talk so so first of all you know i assume that there are academics and there are teachers and they don't necessarily um share the same skill set some academics Mm. just want to do more research and are kind of a deep subject matter experts in a certain field one assume one you know had assumed 10 years ago that if somebody is good at quote unquote teaching uh maybe not 10 years ago but 15 20 years ago they mean face-to-face teaching Mm. and the ability to convey um and and instruct and 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 take somebody through a face-to-face learning experience now it sounds to me like the medium through which you teach is changing and there's going to be a new norm and it may be and and i don't think me or you are qualified enough to second guess uh the 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 kind of the true impact of online versus face-to-face and where this is going in 50 years but Mm. there's a new medium and that new medium is online and in 10 years from now if somebody is a teacher it is going to be assumed that they are if if somebody's a good teacher it's going to be assumed that they're a good online facilitator yeah i guess that's where we're going but but before we get there and before we can make those assumptions there's quite a lot of pain where lots of universities are having to decide what they do as they go through this transition. You've got um, great teachers today who are not great online facilitators. Yeah. You may have some great online facilitators that actually aren't subject matter experts. Yeah. Um, so they're relatively kind of, um, uh, you know, they, they might have kind of uh, surface level knowledge in, in a certain topic and can facilitate uh, and and build a community and, and drive engagement, but not necessarily uh, answer those kind of deep subject matter uh, questions that students may have, certainly at a at a postgraduate level. Yeah. Um. And so universities are having to make the choice of well, what is the model that we choose to operate our online delivery under? Do we, for every module, have a subject matter expert and a facilitator. Can we find somebody that does both? Mm. Um, and and I think it's those decisions that at the moment uh, are are proving quite painful for um, quite a lot of institutions.
1: Again, I have to think of corollaries in other industries where, take the publishing industry for example, and the impact of desktop publishing. You know, when you know I first. Uh, I had to do a layout for a, for a, um, a, a newspaper. We got bromides back. Who, who remembers those? You know, and that was cut into strips, and you had to paste them up onto pages. The second one, we did it ourselves, and we got a, a Mac Plus <laughs> and a big screen, and we <laughs> did it all ourselves. And 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 I think what you know, on a, in a bigger scale, you know, think about that. What are the core capabilities of an institution? Of course, it's about um, you know what is quality and 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 what is the nexus between um, our research and our teaching and 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 what is you know the the that you know grand plan in terms of what what we are as an institution, what are we known for and all those sorts of things. And it's not necessarily been in the past digital capability. And there will come a moment, as you say, when digital capability is bound up with the um, the the institution. Um, and um you know curio will have will have moved on to other things probably by then but right at the moment there's a huge gap in terms of many institutions between what they would like to be able to do and what they can do and i think we're at that moment and it will be um that, yeah 10 to 20 year time period i suppose before we have everything um humming along as it as it we might expect it or want it to be working. But in the online learning space, I think there's a, there's a big gap still.
0: Super, super interesting. Matt, I'm, I'm conscious of your time and it's been a fascinating conversation. Um, is there anything else that, that you'd love to, to talk about or, or tell People about Curio, about yourself, or a kind of a one takeaway key message, etc. And, and if you haven't, that's absolutely fine.
1: I suppose um, the, there's one thing that comes to mind, which is I don't know how many people know about Curio Group. We're not a um, not an organisation that that um, would be um, very well known to your audience, I think. But we do have now a London team, and um, we have for the last eighteen months been working with a range of institutions, but. Um, uh you know if anybody listens to this podcast and wants to get in touch it's curio.co um and you can find the london team there but um yeah um w- what i suppose we're seeing is uh the opportunity to bring some of the lessons we've learned from that australian space particularly with at this moment the other side of covid <laughs> um and uh, and being able to bring that into the to the fully online space and the and coming back to campus, believe it or not, um, on off the end of that into that sort of high high flex and and blended learning space um, renewed. So that's something that um, people might want to talk about. So I'd, I'd say uh, to your listeners, um, get in touch with with the team in Curio in London.
0: Awesome, Matt. Thank you so so much for your time. Uh, it's been truly fascinating. I, I wish you the best of luck with Curio. Sounds like you're doing. Wonderful things, um, and and would love to check in, you know, in a couple of months' time, and and see how you guys are getting on.
1: Terrific, yeah, terrific to
0: talk with you today, Vitaly. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. That's it for this episode. For really useful links and references to topics we covered, please check out businessofeducation.co.uk. I really try and go above and beyond. Connecting what was covered to high quality external resources so you can have some really tangible and actionable quick wins. Please, please, please share this with anybody in the business of education you think this would add value to. And lastly, I'd love to hear your feedback. If you'd like to be on the show yourself or recommend someone, please reach out on LinkedIn on Vitaly Klopot, that's V I T A L Y K L O P O T, and write me a note. I'll be sure to get back to you. Thank you.